So the time is after Pentecost. The followers of Jesus who were gathered in a room waiting for the gift of the Spirit to come have now received the Spirit. The Spirit has fallen on them and the movement of the church has been unleashed. Many have turned to follow in this way of Jesus. A community is forming. And then we pick up at this place in time when Peter and John are walking to the local synagogue for afternoon prayer. And as they get to the synagogue there at the gate to enter in is a man crippled, begging, a man who's always at this gate. He's always at this gate because somebody has to come and get him, pick him up and take him there so that he can beg as people come in through the gate to pray. And on this particular day, Peter and John, they're walking through this gate and they come face to face with this man crippled on the ground. He looks at them expectantly, hoping that they too might have something for him. They do, it's just not what he thinks. And so they look at the man asking for money and they say, we don't have any money. But what I do have for you is this, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And at that very moment, this crippled man who had been begging year after year after year stands up, strength comes to his ankles, to his legs. He rises and he begins to dance and praise God. He hugs Peter and can't stop acknowledging that there is a miracle of healing in their midst. As all of this is taking place, people start to shuffle from the temple to the courtyard. What is happening? What is going on here? What is this miracle? We have seen this man year after year, day after day, lying here, and now he's standing, praising God, dancing around. Imagine the scene, imagine the scenario. And as that settles in to your imagination, I want you to just begin thinking about your own stories of healing. It might be physical, it might be spiritual, it might be relational, it might be economic. The times in which you've been healed, begin to remember them and think of them and hold them. The times you've seen others who are healed, begin to think them up and hold them forth. And I want us to have those just lingering in our spirits as we dive in this morning. But before we do that, let me pray and we'll see where Peter takes us with all of this in a moment. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you that you love us and that you love us so much that you are already present in our midst. And so we welcome you, God. We welcome your spirit here and we invite you to teach us. We invite you to transform us, to make us more like your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that we would join the intensity and the urgency of this early church movement as those who are filled with your spirit to go and witness of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. Would that become the way in which we live our lives as well, God? And then I pray for myself this morning. I pray that I would trust you're leading as we are here and that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you. And if anything should fall on our ears that we're not supposed to listen to or remember, wipe it clean, God. 
so that everything we do together today as we sing and pray and hug one another and receive communion and preach, that all of that would make much of you, would point to you, would bring you glory, God. We love you. We thank you that you love us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we set out to to join this early Jesus following movement of misfits, I want us to prepare ourselves to hear from Peter because now we have the stage that's been set. Someone has been healed and now Peter's gonna begin to share. But I want you to have this important reminder as he goes about proclaiming this good news of Jesus. The reminder is this. Remember that every initiative in evangelism recorded in the book of Acts is an initiative of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is activating what God is doing. And Peter, this one who has just in the name of Jesus healed this crippled man who was begging, was not just, what, 50, 60 some days prior walking away, denying Jesus with his back turned on the movement. It is only the spirit of God that could move him to this place. So pay attention to the way in which the spirit is working in Peter and John. And so what we have here is an opportunity. And that's what Peter sees. It says that at the beginning of Acts 3, verse 12, it says, Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, can't stop talking about Jesus and living out the way of Jesus. And so even as they're just making their way to temple to pray, there they see an opportunity. And that first opportunity leads to this man being healed. He stands up, he walks, he's praising God. And what happens after that? A crowd begins to gather around. They wanna know what's going on. They wanna see what he's gonna say about this God who's healed this man. And so as we think about that, remember there's all of these uh, characters at play here. There's Peter, there's the man who was crippled, and there's the people of Israel who are, being, uh, who are worshiping at the synagogue at that time. And so sometimes the opportunity that's presented, sometimes the opportunities for us. If you think about the crippled man, if you think about the people who are gathered at the temple, but sometimes the opportunity is through us. And that's what Peter notices, that this opportunity is to be stewarded through him. And so he takes this opportunity to tell the story. Here's how it goes. Acts 3, verse 12, Peter saw his opportunity after the man stood up and the crowd gathered round and he addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. He says, this is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy and righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Okay, so hold on. He's got this unique opportunity in the midst of a miracle happening. And he says, hey, 
You're all a bunch of murderers. Interesting strategy. It really is an interesting strategy. So what is he doing here? What's happening? He's addressing who? The people of Israel, because they are the ones who were at the synagogue. That's where they were going. It is the people of Israel, the Jewish people. That's who he's talking to, because they're the ones who were gathered there, and that's why he addresses them this way. And he reminds them that they know what he knows And that's the story of God, the story of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, he says. We all know this story that God's been telling from the beginning. And then he says, now that you know that, here's what you did. You rejected and killed Jesus. However, Peter, he's coming into his own as a preacher And he knows that two words can change the trajectory of an entire sermon. And he says, so while you killed the author of life, but God, he says, right, but God raised him from the dead. Preachers, two favorite words, but God, right? God intervened. God did something with what you did and he made it happen as it was supposed to be. But God took the one you killed and he has this ironic statement, the author of life. You killed the author of life. You're like, how can you do that? Said you can't because God raised him from the dead. And so there's this situation that's happening in their minds. They're like, okay, our God is the God you're talking about. And yet you told us we killed Jesus. So what does he do? He keeps going. He says this. He says, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. Right again, in preaching terms, he has his creative element right in his midst. He has a a prop, so to speak, right? But it's a real life person that all of these people had seen sitting here crippled day after day after day, year after year after year, and he's standing, praising God, dancing in their midst. He says, you know this man, and you saw that he was healed. You saw how crippled he was before. And it's faith in Jesus' name, that has healed him before your very eyes. I feel him like getting all excited at that time. And then I think like in verse 17, he comes down a little bit and he says, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling all the prophets, that all, what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. So while he frames this thing and reminds them it's the same God, their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he says, that there, here we go, you know about Jesus, you saw him, he was murdered, killed, and yet God raised him to life, you saw that, and now you see here in your midst there's evidence that God's up to something because this man stands and praises God. And after he gives them the evidence that's in their midst, Peter has this moment of like empathy. He calls them friends, right? Brothers and sisters. He's identifying with them. He is one of them. And he says, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. Do you know why he can say that? Because not 50 some days before, he had turned his back on the entire movement. He knew what it was like to miss what God had been doing all along. But now he knows he'll never miss it again. 
but he understands what it's like to get there. And he says, so here's the deal. Every single prophet all along the way has been telling us that this Messiah, this Jesus was going to come and he was gonna suffer this way. So God figured out what he needed to do with that. So pay special attention to this. But there's a way in which Peter is interpreting the Bible right now, right? Peter doesn't have the Bible that we have, right? He doesn't have the apostle Paul. We haven't even met him yet in this movement. He doesn't have the letters that Paul wrote. He doesn't have a New Testament. What he's doing is he's interpreting the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's telling them that this whole thing that God's been doing in us, the people of Israel, was intended to point to the person of Jesus for the sake of all of us. He sees the whole thing pointing towards Jesus. And so as, as he's called them murderers, as he's reminded them of this story, of he's shown them a man healed in their midst, it leads to this natural next step where you go, well, now what, right? We're all gathered here. We got it, Peter. Like, what, what do we do now, though? And Peter's really good with the now what's. Here's what he says to the miracle witnessing crowd that's gathered in his midst. He says, now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. What do we do? Now what? He says, repent. Turn back to God. Come back to being the people that God intended for you to be at the very beginning. Turn back. But repentance for the sake of what? There's a word in there refreshment, for the sake of refreshment. Now just, if you're anything like me and you maybe have spent a lot of time growing up in the church and people are like, okay, so you gotta repent of your sins and turn to God, the majority of the time that was a quite uh, a guilt-inducing type of language. It was like, you need to feel bad to come back to God and you're like, okay. Which I mean, yeah, there's probably this element of, of feeling guilty, like, because we know that we've done wrong. When, when our eyes are open to what we've done, when we've separated ourselves from God, where we've participated in the destruction and the separation, certainly we're aware that this is not as it should be. But Peter frames it a little differently. He says, repent, turn back to God, and you will be refreshed by the presence of the Lord. That sounds like something I want to turn back to because that's what God does. So he welcomes us back and his forgiveness refreshes us, heals us just like that man who was crippled begging on the ground. Repentance for the sake of refreshment for the future of a final restoration. Peter says, here's what's happening. That restoration is taking place right now. You saw it. It's about to happen in all of you. But guess what? 
There's also a future restoration that's coming. Jesus will come again and he will restore all things. That's what we're waiting for. Until then, Peter knows exactly what to do because Jesus taught him how to pray it. We bring heaven to earth. We join in the bringing of the kingdom. We participate in the restoration as we walk around in this world. He says, you know what that looks like? It looks like people being healed in all of the ways that healing takes place. Repentance for the sake of refreshment for the future of a final restoration that we can participate in. So as he frames that now what, he brings the whole thing full circle and closes the story like this. He says, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Something Peter took to heart for sure. He listened to everything that Jesus told him for three years. Didn't always get it, but he listened. And now he's living it. He says, then Moses said, anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people because they're going the wrong way. That's what he means. You're going the wrong way. So he says, starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today, which he's speaking to a bunch of people who know every prophet and they know what they were saying. And he's telling them they were speaking about what's happening today through Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and now the outpouring of the spirit. You, he says, are the children of those prophets and you are included In the covenant God promised to your ancestors, for God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. At that moment, it's this reminder to them what God's been doing all along, been blessing the people of God so that they might be a blessing to the entire world. That's why God's doing what he's doing. Not just to save one group of people, but so that as they encounter life, in covenant with God, that they would go and be the blessing to those around them. God's invitation is in fact for all. Then he closes it out. He says, when God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. He reviews the whole story that's been happening from Abraham Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, all the prophets, the whole thing's been leading us here. And why is this their story? So that God would bless them by allowing them to turn from their sins. And once that happens, then they would be able to bless the world. The restoration would begin. It's kingdom language without using kingdom language. And at the heart of all of this, the way in which Peter takes this opportunity and tells this story, I think there's a little underlying thing that we should take notice of. It's that we need more good stories instead of always trying for good advice. Like imagine that story that this crippled man would tell. Imagine the story that all of those people who were gathered around and witnessed this miracle, and as we find out later in Acts 4, believed and joined in this movement of misfits, this unleashing Jesus community in the world. Imagine the stories they would tell. We need more good stories. And so we look at this and we go, well, how did the people of Israel 
respond. In Acts 4, verses 3 and 4, we find out. Some of them wanted immediately to put Peter and John in jail. The leaders, those defending a certain type of truth and a certain type of power, like this isn't the way it's supposed to happen. Our Messiah hasn't come and you're just stirring up disturbances. We wanna get them in jail. But then, Acts 4 verse four, it says many believed. So some wanted to squash the movement, but some or many couldn't deny what was happening in their midst and they joined the movement. And as I've been thinking about all that's taking place in Acts 3 and just even the whole book of Acts, I keep asking myself, how do we bridge what's happening here in the ancient church, the early Christian church, to what's happening in our lives in 2019? Like, how do we, how do we access this fervor and this urgency and this passion and this love for one another and for Jesus? How do we do that? Because it's such a long gap, 2,000 plus years. And I'm like, okay, it's a really different world though. And as I've been trying to figure out how to bridge that gap for us, I also had this other thing that was pressing in me and I knew I wanted to highlight that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I wanted to highlight the life and leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. And so I'd been reading a bunch from him again every year around this time, reminding myself of what he was about and what he stood for and what he did. And I, I was reading his letter from a Birmingham jail. And I think it's a real fitting bridge for us. It's an intense letter, but I guess that's probably because he was writing from jail a few years prior to being killed. And so what I've done is I've, I've patched together parts of his letter it's kind of long, but it's needed. We need to hear it. And I think it's the bridge between where we see these early Christians living and where we are now. And it'll, it'll stir in us something that will challenge us, that will convict us, that will inspire us all in the same moment. And so as I read this letter that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a jail in Birmingham, I want you to remember that these words got him killed. Just as I want you to remember the words that Peter preached here, got him crucified upside down. Because both of them were preaching the words that they heard the Messiah Jesus preach and teach them and that got him killed. It's one thing to talk about being these people and it's a whole nother thing to do it. And so here, is the letter Dr. King wrote from a Birmingham jail on April 16th, 1963. This letter was written on the margins of newspapers, put together by his staff into a coherent open letter to a group of white clergymen who had been challenging why he was even in Birmingham at all. Dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try and answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. 
But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a nonviolent direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is just justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that is just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking daddy why do, you, do the white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess, confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. 
who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of nonviolent direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests, manifests itself, and that is what's happened to the American Negro. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gain a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not the prophet Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love truth and goodness and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. I've traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I've looked at the south's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. Over and over, I have found myself asking what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? 
Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in that time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on. And the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Then he says this. Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? And he closes it out by saying this. He says, if I said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I, if I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. So Jesus has shown us a way. Peter and John are showing us the way. Martin Luther King Jr. was showing us the way. And there's opportunities. And they might be for our own healing or the opportunities might be for others offered through the person of Jesus. But those opportunities always keep pointing back to Jesus. 
It's the entire great God's story that's been pointing to Jesus who's embodied in this gospel life, death and resurrection. And now in Acts 3, we're witnessing his spirit filling his followers to go and be these people in the world. And the invitation is to turn to him, to receive his forgiveness and his refreshment and to join in the restoration of all things through the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes back to make the restoration final. Hear the invitation, respond and join in. I wanna give God the last word for you in all of this. There's probably a lot to think about or pray through. Repent, invite, think, whatever it is you need to, to say to the Lord. Take a few moments with him and then I'll pray and lead us into communion together. So have that time now. God, we sit here humbly with you. Convicted by your Holy Spirit and reminded that we are in need of the saving love that is experienced in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. So we turn back to you we receive your forgiveness. And in receiving your forgiveness, we are refreshed for you all with us. And God, as we receive that refreshment, it is only found in your forgiving, saving love. Would you fill us with your spirit so that we would go about joining you in the restoration of all things as we wait, hopeful for you to come again in the final restoration to make all things new. May we live presently in the in-between and live with the same sacrificial, urgent, loving, committed, faith of those we read about in the beginning of Acts, we see played out in the lives of Peter and John and the early followers of Jesus. The life and leadership and commitment of a man like Martin Luther King Jr. Would we remember that all of these people did not do it on their own, but through the power of you, present in them. Would we rely on that power too, God? Thank you for loving us, for being with us and drawing us not only to you, but to one another. We cannot live this life without you and we cannot live this life on our own. And so surround us with those who spur us on to go and be the people you've called us to be for your glory, God. We love you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. 
If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.